Have you ever been kidnapped? Well, I have. And before you feel too bad for me, this is actually one of my favorite birthday memories of my life. I was turning 22, and I was just about to graduate from the Harvard of the Midwest, Cedarville University, and I was sitting in the dorm room of one of my friends. I'll call him Austin because that's his actual name. And, and we were playing Madden, of all things, on my birthday. And before I know it, the door of his dorm room bursts open and three of my other friends walk, like they burst into the room and they take me hostage, blindfold me, duct tape my hands, duct tape my feet, throw me over their shoulders and begin parading me down to the parking lot of the dorm. They open up the trunk of Austin's car, throw me in the trunk, and they begin parading through the town of Cedarville while blaring 22 by Taylor Swift in the car. And there's like two stoplights in all of Podunk, Cedarville. I mean, there's nothing there. Well, the whole speed limit is like 15 miles an hour. They've got to be flying 40. At least that's what it felt like while I was in the trunk. And they approach this raised sidewalk in front of one of the dorms. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a speed bump, but 10 times bigger. You're supposed to go like three miles an hour over it. Well, they went 40 and it's like a ski jump and I fly up and nail my head in the top of the trunk. I don't know how I didn't get a concussion. One of the guys in the backseat yelled at Austin and said, don't kill Sam. It's exactly what you want to hear on your birthday, right? (laughs) So I'm thinking through all of this pain, all of this suffering that I'm going through, they've got something great planned that maybe they've, they've got this surprise party or a great way to celebrate my birthday. <laughs> oh, nope, that wasn't the case. We pulled back into the parking lot of the dorm room, the same spot where we left, and they open up the trunk of the car, pull me out, and I am met by 10 whipped cream pies right in the face, and I'm lactose intolerant. That is what we call a planned, deliberate, well-executed kidnapping attempt. And I'm thankful that that's a story of kidnapping that we can laugh at. But unfortunately, most of the time when we use the word kidnap, it's not a laughing matter. As we look at the book of Colossians, that's actually the reason that Paul wrote this book. Because there was these men, these women, these false teachers who had infiltrated their way into the church at Coloss. And they looked like everybody else. They maybe pretended to be their friends. They maybe invited them into their dorm room, right? but they were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were trying to pull the, the, the church away from the truth, the orthodoxy, the gospel that Paul had proclaimed. And he writes them to warn them of this kidnap attempt on their theology. The church was under attack. But that wasn't just 2,000 years ago, was it? The church is under attack today. And there are kidnap attempts that are happening on your faith and my faith. And thankfully, I'm not aware of anyone trying to intentionally derail our faith within the young adult family, and that's a good thing. But think about the church globally. Think about the church universally. We're so much smaller today than we ever have been because of technology. But think of how many sermons just from yesterday that you or I could just go on the internet and listen to. And it's amazing. Sometimes the best heretics are also the best communicators, they can package the truth and, and falsehood in such a way that it sounds really good. It sounds really attractive. It, they might even use some of the right words, but there's enough falsehood to lead people astray, to pull people off of the truth. It's a spiritual kidnap attempt. And Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossus, and he's writing to you and I 
today to warn us to guard against that kidnapping attempt in our spiritual lives. And one of the ways that we can do that is by understanding right theology. Now, I know when I use the word theology, some of us might get a little uneasy. And that's, that's understandable. I, I've heard some people say, well, theology, that's for professors. That's for pastors. But that's not for every Christian. I cringe a little bit when I hear that because the word theology literally means the study of God. By definition, all Christians are theologians because we can grow in our love for God partially by understanding him in a deeper way. So I'm warning you tonight and next week, just by the nature of the texts we're going to look at, are just a little bit more theological than normal. But that's okay, because all of us are theologians. And one of the best ways that we can guard against the planned, deliberate attacks on our theology is by understanding the right theology. That's what Paul does in this text. In his normal Paul style, he doesn't just tell us what not to believe, but he tells us what to believe, and he outlines right theology for us. And I'm going to do the same thing. I'm not going to name drop and call out people who I think are false teachers. We could do that, but I don't think it's that beneficial. Because the landscape of bad theology, the landscape of false teachers, is going to change within the next week, within the next year, within the next decade. It's far more important for you and I to know how to recognize bad theology than who I think might be bad theologians. Does that make sense? So our goal tonight is to understand who God is in a deeper way, understand right theology, and at the same time understand this theological kidnap attempt that was happening at the church at Colossus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. You can follow along with me as I read. We'll just read our whole paragraph from verses 8 to 15. Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who's the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh and by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, unfortunately, the aggression in Paul's language doesn't quite come out in the English. Our text says, see to it that no one takes you captive. But in the Greek, this is an imperative command. He's saying, watch out that no one takes you away as a captive. Literally the same word as being taken away as a slave. He's commanding them to be on guard, to be on watch, making sure that they don't get kidnapped. And he tells them to watch out for this philosophy and empty deceit. Paul's not saying that all philosophy is bad. He's saying that this particular type of philosophy is bad that focused on two things. That it was characterized by human tradition and it was characterized by the elemental spirits of this world. To boil it down to two words, these false teachers were promoting... Something quite simple. Jesus 
plus. You need Jesus plus obeying the law, and then you can be a Christian. You need Jesus plus this supernatural experience, and then you can be a Christian. You need Jesus plus being circumcised, and then you can be a real Christian. They were adding things, tacking things on to the message of the gospel that Paul had proclaimed. And that's what we see in this text. He calls this human tradition. Based on the context, that human tradition is most certainly the Old Testament law, commanding them that to be a Christian, they still had to follow God's Old Testament commands, especially circumcision. But the other half of it, Paul talks about the elemental spirits of this world. It's a unique phrase, but Paul is talking about the demonic forces, those that work in opposition to the work of Christ in the world. And this teaching, this belief of these false teachers, they had this idea that the Christians needed to help Jesus out in his fight against temptation or in his fight against evil, that somehow they needed to appease the spiritual forces in the world in order to help Jesus which sounds kind of foreign to us, but we have to remember the background that these men and these women were coming out of. The church at Colossus, before they were Christians, there was this spiritualistic, mystical sort of experience where they were in tune to the spirit world. It would make sense then that these false teachers would appeal to their old way of life and trying to derail their faith. And that's exactly what we see here but they taught that they needed to somehow appease the spiritual forces of this world. Maybe a sports analogy would help understand what Paul's talking about. Giannis Antetokounmpo is one of the best, maybe the best basketball player in the world, and it's just fun to say his last name, right? He plays for Milwaukee Bucks and should have won a championship this year, but that's a totally different story. Um, But imagine that Giannis, maybe the best basketball player in the world, tries to play the Los Angeles Lakers one-on-five. He's not going to win right? He needs at least four other guys that are somewhat competent that can help him get the job done and beat the Lakers. That's kind of the idea that these false teachers were promoting, that sure, Jesus was strong, sure, Jesus was great, sure, he was the best of the best, but but he still needed some help to defeat the enemy. And Paul says that is absolutely not true. He makes it crystal clear that Jesus is not only the favorite to win every matchup, but that he's already defeated Satan. Listen to verses 9 and 10 and 15 again. Verse 9, For in him, who's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who's the head of all rule and authority. Verse 15, And Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, it's clear. Paul's saying that Jesus is the boss. He's the authority. He's in charge. Nothing happens in the universe outside of Jesus's purview. And yes, the spiritual forces in the world might be an enemy for us, but Jesus has won, is winning, and will always win the battle against the enemy. He's already won the game. And Paul uses the phrase, open shame, that he triumphed over these rulers, these authorities, which is literally tran- could be translated public disgrace through the cross. Now, in our culture, public disgrace isn't that big of a deal because we live in a guilt-based society where for us, ultimate humiliation comes when we face a punishment. But that wasn't the case in the shame and honor culture that Paul was writing to. Ultimate humiliation comes not through the consequence, but through public and open humiliation. And that's what Paul is saying, that Satan... When Jesus died on the cross, conquering sin once and for all, rising from the dead, he put Satan on display as a fraud, giving him complete 
open humiliation and public disgrace. He suffered the ultimate defeat by what Jesus did on the cross. But we have to understand that for you and I, Satan is a real enemy. Sometimes he might defeat us, but he will never defeat Jesus. And that's the line that these false teachers had crossed. That's the theological distinction between good theology and bad theology. We need Jesus to defeat temptation. Jesus does not need us. We need Jesus' help. He does not need our help. And that's clear from verse 10. All of the fullness of God, the deity, dwells bodily in Christ. And then Paul actually uses the same Greek word in verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Now, is Paul saying that we have the fullness of God in us? Absolutely not. Jesus is fully God and fully man, but we have been filled in Christ. One commentator uses this analogy, and I found it helpful. Imagine that I'm standing on the beach in the, at the Pacific Ocean, and I have a jar in my hand, and I fill it with water, Pacific Ocean water. Now, the jar is full of the Pacific, but it doesn't contain the fullness of the Pacific. Does that make sense? And it's the same in terms of our relationship with Christ. We have been filled with Christ, but we don't experience the, the fullness of Christ. But theologically, that's such an important thing for us to understand, that when we turn away from our sin, we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, and we have that eternal relationship with the Father, we are filled in Christ. That we don't have to do these extra things, participate in these supernatural experiences to try to fill up the cup a little bit more. We have fullness of Christ. It reminds me of a worship song um, called Set a Fire. I don't think we sing it here, at least not that I remember. But at the end of the chorus, there's this line that says, I want more of you, God. I want more of you, God. Now, it's kind of ambiguous, not sure exactly what it means, but if we sing that and we mean that we actually want more of Jesus, we look at this text and Paul says, you've already been filled with Christ. You don't need to seek more of Jesus. We've been filled in him. It's an important thing for us to understand. Jesus is enough. He's sufficient we're already full of Christ. We don't need to add any spiritual exercises, certain practices to be a real Christian or to have some sort of special spiritual fulfillment. Christ is all you need. He is all I need. And he's infinitely stronger than the spiritual forces that might oppose us in the world today. And that's our first principle. Jesus is never the underdog. Jesus is never the underdog. Jesus has won, will win, and is always going to defeat our enemy. Now, as we try to contextualize what Paul is saying, I don't think that many of us, actually, I don't think that any of us believe that Jesus could be defeated by Satan. I don't think that many of us believe that we somehow need to appease the spiritual forces in the world to help Jesus out. I think that was a temptation for the church at Colossus, probably not a widespread temptation for the church today. But as we take a step back and try to bridge the context between both of these passages, how might we apply this to our life? Well, I think it's tempting for you, I think it's tempting for me to over-attribute power to the enemy. 
I think it's easy for us to blame Satan when we give in to sin. Maybe it sounds like this. Satan made me do it. Ah, the temptation was just too strong. Ah, I didn't have a way out. I couldn't, I couldn't find a way not to give in to that sin. Maybe we've been there. Maybe we were there today. I'm not sure. Because it's ingrained in our hearts to play the blame game when it comes to our sin. Wasn't that what happened in the fall? Think what happened with Adam and Eve. God confronts Adam with the sin, and what does Adam do? The woman that you gave me, it was her fault. So not only does he blame the woman, he actually tries to blame God as well. And then what does Eve say? I was the serpent. I always wondered what would have happened if Adam and Eve would have said, we're so sorry. We messed up and we broke your law. Will you forgive us? I don't know. (laughs) We'll never know. But since the fall, it has been ingrained in your heart. It's been ingrained in my heart to try to cast blame for our sin. And we're really good at it. I mean, we're really good at it. Think of all of the things that we might blame for sin in our life. God, if you would just allow me to be married, then this struggle with lust wouldn't be a reality in my life anymore. God, if COVID wasn't a reality, then I wouldn't have this sin struggle in my life. If my doctors could just get my medications straightened out, then I wouldn't be tempted in this direction. If work wasn't just such a struggle, then I wouldn't feel like I had to indulge in this area of my life. If these friends weren't in my life, then then I wouldn't give in to this sin. And we could go on and on and on. How often do we try to blame the enemy? How often do we try to blame our circumstances? How often do we try to blame other people for the sin in our life? If we want to defeat sin, and I hope that you do. I think oftentimes step one is owning it and recognizing that the lure for us to give in to sin doesn't come from out here, it comes from here. And that's what James says in James 1.14, that we are lured and enticed by our own desire. It's kind of a sobering reality, isn't it? Because I would really like to blame Satan for my sin. But when I recognize that the sin comes from in here, that's not that comforting and encouraging. But often that's step one in defeating the sin in our life, owning it and then giving it to Jesus and recognizing that we have everything that we need to live a life of godliness, that there's no temptation that will overcome us except that which is common to man, that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, that in all of our temptation, God's going to provide a way out that we can stand up under it. Any temptation that you and I face in our life, we can overcome through the power of Christ. That's a promise in God's word. So maybe it's time for some of us to fight a little bit harder. Maybe it's time for some of us to lean into Christ. Maybe it's time for some of us in the midst of that temptation to pray out loud in Jesus' name, crying out to him, asking him to give us the strength to overcome that temptation in our life. We don't have to walk in defeat because Jesus has already won. Let's not fall into the spiritual kidnapping trap of over-attributing power to the enemy. Well, that's the first half of this false teaching. And then the other half has to deal with the Old Testament law, the tradition, the human tradition. Let me read verse 11 again for us. 
In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, if we want to understand this text, we're going to have to understand circumcision. And that's not necessarily the most comfortable things to talk about. And if we were talking about circumcision with a group of junior hires, then we'd all be blushing right now, but we're not junior hires. I remember when I was in junior high and a Bible teacher read a text like this and one of the students raised her hand and in all seriousness asked, what is circumcision? And the teacher very aptly and astutely said, why don't you just go talk to your parents about that tonight? So if you don't know what circumcision is, you know, since he had so many years of youth pastor experience, Fritz would be happy to answer your questions. So you can go talk to him when the night is over. Thank you so much for your kindness and service towards us, Fritz. Appreciate that. Uh, but circumcision was the introduction of a Jew into the covenant family. It was the introduction to the law. And it didn't start with Moses. It actually started with Abraham. To understand how this started, let me read Genesis 17, um, 9 through 11. And God said to Abraham, verse 10, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So this was a command that God gave to Abraham, him, and all of his ancestors, which were the Jews, that on the eighth day, when a Jewish boy was born, that he would be circumcised, and it was a sign of their entrance into the covenant, following the law, and it was the first act of obedience to what God had commanded them to do. Now fast forward 2,000 years, and Jesus came to earth. He followed and obeyed the law in all thought, in all action, and was without sin. And what Paul is explaining in this text is that Jesus fulfilled the law, and he removed from us the curse of the law and the obligation of the law, so that you and I aren't obligated then to follow the circumcision command, for example, from this text. But that was a really difficult thing for the Jews to understand. Because this had been something that was part of the Jewish culture for thousands of years. So then after the time of Christ and during the time while Paul was teaching and going on his missionary journeys and writing letters, there were many Jews who were proposing this idea that in order to be a Christ follower, you had to be Jewish. In order to be a Christ follower, you had to be circumcised. Now that's every adult man's favorite thing to think about. Right. Not at all. But that's what these false teachers were proposing. And Paul is saying that that's not at all how it works because Jesus has set us free from the curse and the obligation of the law. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus, period. These false teachers were proposing two paths. You had to have faith in Christ, but then you also had to follow the law. And Paul is saying you can't choose both. And Paul makes that clear in verse 11. He says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, Paul is saying that the moment we turn from our sin, we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, that we are spiritually circumcised. That God removes that heart of stone, removes the flesh and adopts us into his family. So if that's the case, then Paul's saying, why practice physical circumcision? Because we've already been spiritually 
circumcised. We've been released from the obligation of the law. So that's what Paul's talking about with the circumcision ideas there in verse 11. As we continue, let me read verses 13 and 14. In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal commands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This has to be my favorite two verses in this passage, if that's okay. And we're going to do our best to try to wrap our mind around what Paul is saying. But record of debt is literally an IOU statement that we would write in our own hand to God. Now, as people created in God's image, the standard for a perfect, or a standard for a relationship with God, the standard for entrance into heaven is complete perfection. And how do we understand what God's standard is, his rules? Well, we understand that in the Old Testament law. The Jews identified 613 different laws in the Old Testament. It's hard to necessarily count, but that's the number that they selected. And the law is not all bad. We understand God's heart. We understand what God desires of us from the law. But at the same time, when you and I read the law, it leaves us condemned because we see our sin for what it is. What might be the most famous part of God's law in the Old Testament? Probably the Ten Commandments. Do you think you can say them all? I'm going to see if I can, but I have them written down and I've been practicing. So, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Obey your parents. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. How many of those have we broken today? Well, when we remember that Jesus defined sin, not just on the action level, but on the heart level, on the attitude level, on the mind level, then you and I are so guilty, it's not even funny. I mean, imagine what would happen if God printed out a receipt, like the receipt that you get at the grocery store. I don't know if you keep those or not. But what would happen if God printed out a receipt that listed out our sin from our entire life? Let's say you and I sin 20 times a day. Now that might sound like a lot, but, rem- but remember, God defines sin as every little lustful thought and every gossiping comment and every ungrateful attitude, and the list could go on and on. We think of sin that way, well, 20 might be on the low side. But let's just say we sin 20 times a day during the course of our lifetime. That receipt of sin is going to be two miles long. Imagine someone walks up to God on judgment day and he says, why should I let you into heaven? And they reply, well, because I'm a pretty good person. And God proceeds to roll out two miles worth of offenses. That'd be a little humiliating, wouldn't it be? But you see what Paul is saying in this text? That Jesus took our sin He took your two mile long, maybe yours is only a mile, maybe mine is four miles. He nailed it to the cross. Look at verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made us alive together, having forgiven us some of our trespasses. Is that what it says? 
having forgiven us most of our trespasses. No, he's forgiven us all of our trespasses. And I think some of you need to hear that tonight. That maybe you walked in the door believing a lie that there's something that's in your past that God couldn't forgive. Or you crossed the line, you committed the same sin for the 101st time, and you believe there's no way God could keep forgiving me. Maybe you just feel too dirty and too broken. Maybe you feel like there's just something you have to do in order to earn God's forgiveness. Friends, those are lies from the enemy. That's a spiritual kidnap attempt. Because he's forgiven us all of our trespasses. When we believe in Christ, all of our sin, past, present, and future, was paid for at the cross when Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished. And that's a free gift that's available to everyone. But it doesn't apply to everyone. It's a gift that must be received by the power of the Spirit turning away from our sin and believing that when Jesus died, he took your receipt and he nailed it to the cross. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? He loves you and he wants to forgive you. And for all of us, there's another aspect of this analogy that Paul's getting at. Not only does he nail the receipt of our sin to the cross, but those 613 laws, our legal obligation to fulfill the law was also nailed to the cross. Now, don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that as Christians, we can do whatever we want. That's not how it works. But here's what I'm saying. Following the Old Testament law is not the path to a relationship with God. Jesus is the path to having a relationship with God. And this concept completely inverts the perspective of every religion in the world. Virtually every religion operates on the following premise. I obey and then I'm accepted by God. I'm obey, I obey and then I'm accepted by God. Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Catholicism, the list could go on and on. It's an obedience-based structure. But when Jesus came and he died on our behalf and rose from the dead, he completely inverted the paradigm of religion in our world because he flips that statement on his head. I'm accepted by God and then I obey. That our obedience is fueled not by trying to earn favor with God, not by trying to make our way into heaven. Our obedience is fueled by God's love for us because he's adopted us into his family. It completely inverts the perspective of religion in our world. And friends, that's actually the most dangerous theological kidnapping attempt in our world today because that umbrella can cover just about every false teaching in the world, an obedience-based structure. The most dangerous theological attack on our world today takes some gospel talk, some Jesus talk, some Bible talk, but builds it on top of a works-based foundation telling us that we need to somehow earn right status before God. But that's not how it works. We're accepted by God and then we obey. Jesus is all we need. And that's our second principle tonight. Jesus alone is sufficient to save. 
Jesus alone is sufficient to save. We're not saved by Jesus plus the law. We're not saved by Jesus plus circumcision. We're not saved by Jesus plus good works. We're saved by Jesus, period. And we respond to the message of the gospel with repentance and faith. Well, if you're paying attention, I left out a verse in the middle. I left out verse 12. We've got to understand what Paul's talking about here. Having been buried with him in a baptism which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Well, let's talk for just a moment about baptism because we've got to understand what Paul's talking about here if we want to understand the nature of baptism throughout the New Testament. Now, baptism, baptize, comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which means that our translations aren't translations, they're transliterations. We just took a Greek word and turned it into an English word, which means we need to ask, what does baptizo mean? It means a couple different things, to dip, to immerse, or to place into. And when Paul uses the word baptize in the New Testament, he uses it in two senses. There's a spiritual sense, and there's a physical sense. Every time he's talking about salvation, as he is here, he's using baptism in a spiritual sense when we are placed into Christ. The moment we turn from our sin, we trust in Christ by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And we are placed into Christ. That is our spiritual baptism. Not by anything that we've done, but completely by God's grace for us in Christ. And then physical baptism, being immersed into the water, is a sign, a symbol of our spiritual baptism. And that's what Paul's talking about in this text. We're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by baptism, but baptism is a symbol. It's a memorial of what Christ has done in our hearts. More than that, it's actually a picture of our identity with Christ. Because when someone goes down into the water, it's a picture of them being buried with Christ in his death and being raised out of the water, being raised with him to new life. Baptism is an incredible picture. But baptism always happens in response to our salvation not contributing towards our salvation. I was, uh, I, when I grew up, my parents were nominal Catholics, didn't really go to church, um, but decided to have me baptized in the Catholic church. So I was as an infant. And looking back, I actually don't consider that my baptism. I just consider that getting wet or getting a bath because baptism always follows our salvation. So when I was 17, I was baptized as a declaration to my family, to my friends, that I was following Jesus and there was no turning back. Have you been baptized since becoming a Christian? And if not, what's holding you back? Why not follow this act of obedience and decide to make that declaration and be baptized? And we'll have a chance to talk about that a little bit more in our small groups tonight. Well, there's a lot in that passage And we'll continue talking about these spiritual kidnapping attempts next week. But we've got to be on guard. We've got to watch out that we don't fall prey to a planned and deliberate attack. And, you know, I think one of the best ways for us to be on guard is to grow in our understanding of right theology. The more we understand who God is, the more we understand the right picture of who he is, the easier it is going to be to pick out the fraudulence and the frauds. So two ideas as we close on how we can do that this week. One, we've got to read the Word. If we want to know God, we've got to be in His Word. That's one of the best ways for us to grow in our understanding of 
theology. Second, you know, some of us have done book studies with some others in young adults, others outside of young adults, which is great. I love hearing that every time I hear somebody's doing a book study. What if we do a theology text? What if you do a theology text for your next round of book studies? I know that might sound intimidating, that might sound lofty, but I think it'd be a great discussion. If you need some recommendations on a good book to do, um, ask Andrew, ask me, we'd be happy to point you in that direction. Because theology matters greatly to God, and it should matter greatly to us too. Let's pray. Well, Father, a lot to chew on from your word tonight. Um, So many things, even just to ask for in humility, that we might understand your forgiveness. That if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you, that they might decide to follow you. And that if anyone is doubting the power of the cross to forgive any and every sin, may they understand and know in their hearts the depth of your forgiving grace. May we walk in obedience, being aware of an attempt to try to derail us, an attempt to try to get us off the path that you've set for us. And may we understand truly and accurately who you are and what you've done for us. And as we take some time to dialogue a little bit in small groups, may you guide our time. In Jesus' name, amen.